0: <clears throat> this is a Romy cast. One, two, three, four.
1: Do you ever get tired of
0: being Beatles? I play the uh bass, uh, I play the drums, and I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What?
1: Is he dead? Sit you down, Father.
0: Rescue.
2: 12. <laughs> we Very Can
1: We just have a little less guitar in here? Oh, no, like to the air for us. Oh,
2: that's a oh. to Mr. John finally got just after that and we
1: both of us do what we wanted to do do what we wanted to do.
0: That's not bad,
2: that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the award-winning The Walrus Was Paul podcast, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. This podcast was voted winner Outstanding Music Series at the 2022 Canadian Podcast Awards. You know, I've been doing this podcast now since July of 2020 and have released over 50 episodes and spoken with some of the finest in the Canadian music world about some of the greatest music ever recorded. Now, normally I speak with a guest about their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album and we go through it track by track. You know the drill if you are a regular listener to this podcast. But this series, I've been doing a few one off special episodes where we choose a theme as opposed to an album. For example, singer-songwriter, guitar player Stephen Stanley was on an episode where we spoke about his favorite Beatles guitar moments. So along those lines, today I am joined by Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo, and we're going to talk about some of their favorite Beatles vocal performances. Now, Jim Cuddy, I don't have to tell you if you're a big fan of music, is one of Canada's finest singer-songwriters, has an absolutely beautiful voice. So if there's somebody who can talk about great Beatles vocal performances, Jim might be a guy. Uh, Along with writing partner Greg Keeler, Jim has given birth to many classic tunes known by music fans across the world. Try, After the Rain, Till I'm Myself Again, just a few that uh, come off the top of my head. Blue Rodeo has sold over 5 million albums and Jim has also released a bunch of solo albums. You can find out all you want to know about Jim at his website, jimcutty.com. His Blue Rodeo bandmate, the outstanding guitar player and singer Colin Cripps, was a key member of the Canadian folk rock band Crash Vegas. That's a band that never really got its full due, I didn't think. Uh, He's produced and played with and written with, to name a few, Colin James, Kathleen Edwards, Brian Adams, Big Wreck, Sarah McLaughlin, and so on. He's been the lead guitar player in Blue Rodeo for the last 10 years. You can visit Colin's website ColinCripps.com for more info on Colin and his solo work. The website for this podcast is RomyCast.com That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com And if you head there, you can find many of the episodes that we have done so far and you can listen to them right there on the player that's built into the website or you can get other episodes wherever it is that you got this episode. Over the course of this episode and the next, we'll be talking about 10 Beatles tracks that Jim and Colin have chosen as having outstanding Beatles vocal performances. I posted their list in the episode show notes with a link to a playlist on Tidal. So without further ado, I'll say a big hello to returning guests Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps. Guys, thanks once again for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Pleasure. Pleasure as always. Uh, so, before we jump into your favorite Beatle vocal moments or some of them, uh, I've got to ask you, uh, Jim, you can go first. Now and then, what did you think?
1: Oh, I liked it. I, I mean, I think that, uh, uh, you know, any new Beatles stuff is going to be a thrill. As my brothers said, it's incredible that just the. The iconography of the Beatles—that they that they've done a song. The song that's come out is called "Now and Then." is about mm-hmm. the passage of time. It's it could not possibly have been done until this new technology was able to separate all the voices. So it 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 just continues to deepen the mythology of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Colin, oh, what, it, did you, what what
0: do you think?
2: I I, I can't uh, disagree with. Any of that, I think it's exactly what it feels like and sounds like, and it is sort of like the legend of the Beatles continues. Does you know, you know, beyond anybody's imagination of what is the was the end or what you know is sort of how they have continued to keep. On people's minds.
0: All right. So, just a little bit of context before we jump into this. So, in an earlier episode of the podcast, Jim said, uh, and this is a quote if you have been in a band in the 20th century, you cannot help but mimic Beatle background vocals. So, uh, you hear them in Blue Rodeo songs. Uh, other be you hear them in Blur songs, Oasis, America, The Eagles, and On It Goes. Uh, we could probably, the three of us, sit here and rhyme off songs and bands that were influenced just by Beatles vocals, never mind production and music. But what about the Beatles? And I did want to look into this. Who were they influenced vocally by? Well, a couple of obvious ones. For certain songs, Little Richard, you know, McCartney's performance in Long Tall Sally, by admission, was a, a Little Richard past but on a bigger scale, in a piece in The Observer that I found from 2021, music writer Alex, uh, Alexis Pedrettes wrote, there is a version of two of us taped on the 25th of January 1969 during the Get Back sessions. John Lennon and Paul McCartney harmonize, and the latter, McCartney says to the former, take it, Phil. And that was a reference to Phil and Don Everly, the duo duo upon whom the pair had originally attempted to model themselves. Uh, On an early holiday and in an old interview, I found Lennon and McCartney would uh, try to impress local girls by telling them they had a band back home and they were the British Everly Brothers. Uh, And McCartney wrote later that their music echoed through my mind. So the Everly Brothers, dear listener, if you're not familiar, Don and Phil, an amazing run of hits from '57 through '62: "Bye Bye Love," "Wake Up Little Susie," "Kathy's Clown," "Walk Right By," "Crying in the Rain," "Temptation," and so on. Does that surprise you at all that the Everlys were sort of the vocal models for some of the Beatles stuff?
1: No, I, I certainly knew that. I, I, I knew that they were they were uh, um, early early fans of that. But it, it's it's sort of incredible. I, I, Sometimes you listen to somebody talk about their their influences, and you think you just surpassed that so by so much, <laughs> and you surpassed that by the time I got to know you. So I understand that that was probably part of the formation of their band, but uh, they were they were just miles away from that by the time they started the
2: Beatles, really.
0: Yeah. What do you think, Colin, makes the Beatles harmonies so unique?
2: Well, I did a little bit of you know reading. I mean, I've 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 been as fascinated about it as I'm sure any listener would be or musician would be, and I did a little reading about it. And you know, they do sort of they continually suggest that when they started out, they had no musical they had no musical education. They had no real understanding of how to do things. They were very much emulators and imitators. But they were also so clearly they they started with like the Everly Brothers and the song or the singers of their time that they they were influenced on. But I think as Paul suggests more than John from my reading that they were kind of fearless in the way that they figured out what worked between the two of them. And because they weren't musically educated, they didn't always know what they were doing. And when I listen to especially the early stuff, I hear that, I just hear this, like they worked things out between them but they weren't necessarily musically um, derived like or sort of educationally derived They just were doing stuff just riffing between each other and went oh that sounds good do that again and they would they, they got to because they were obviously brilliant musical ears in their early days they were able to figure out how to construct that.
1: They they never you know their their gifts were so much greater than than the Phil and Don era. I mean yeah. they are, they could never have been contained to just the, the third harmony and following yeah. back and forth. They 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 never could have just stayed there.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to this. What I did, uh, dear listener, is uh, Jim and Colin each got back to me and uh, and they each submitted a list of five. So five Beetle great Beatle vocal tracks for reasons that we'll hear from them as we go through it. Uh, so five each. So we're going to go through side one, five cuts, side two, five cuts. Uh, and I'll tell you who selected the song, but as I say, I expect there'll be lots of crosstalk anyway. And we're going to do it chronologically in the order of release, so not recording. So that kind of comes into play near the end with Abbey Road and, and Let It Be. Spoiler alert, there are songs from those albums uh, on one of the lists. But let's start off with with the <laughs> side one and cut one. And this was selected by Colin. Love me, do. <laughs>
2: I chose it uh, firstly, because it was the very first single that they released. Um, And uh, there's there's an interesting backstory to the song. Uh, uh, The song was written by Paul, but before the Beatles actually became the Beatles. So it was probably part of his early writing. And um, it sort of was just sort of around. And then when they started working on it um, in earnest, uh, John contributed, uh, helped with the, uh, the bridge of the song. So that's the construction of it. Vocally, um, what's really amazing about that song to me, not just because it's the first song they put out and they really did, uh, I mean, just to give you a little background, they recorded it three times with three different drummers, it clearly was a song that they that, that George Martin felt was had a lot of potential to be a hit, but they had to make it. He had to make it perfect. So they did three different versions over the course of about three months with three with three different drummers, and um, so there's one. That's one thing about it that I find really interesting. Um, but vocally, when you listen to the song, for me, what it did is it it sort of it says how well. John and Paul were able to work out their parts together, and that song, um, the way it's the way it's performed, Paul does the verses, um, but he sings them. He sings the verse part low, and John sings the the harmony high. But when they get to the please, please, uh, sorry, uh, love me do, uh, Paul stays. Uh, Paul goes low. And the only reason there's no harmony is because John had, they did it live and John had to play the harp. So they had to construct this vocal arrangement that seems like, oh yeah, well today you just go, okay, you do your part, I'll overdub my part, we'll overdub the harmonica and it'll all come together. They did that as a live performance on um, like a one microphone And they had to work out those parts between the harp and the vocals. So they had to actually figure out the harmonies they were gonna each sing. And they flip between the two. And I just like, I listen to that and I go, that's genius right there, that's brilliant. like the way they constructed that. It sounds so effortless, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah, so with all due respect,
2: I'm Uh, about to criticize this choice. Okay.
1: So I recognize what you're saying and I think they were always clever. They were always clever, and they had no problem uh, uh, flipping, flipping har- harmonies. No problem somebody going high, somebody going low. But for me, uh, the song, as nice as it is, and as clever as all that is, it's, it's, you know, John always knew his voice. John always knew what he was doing. He sang, mm-hmm. and he really didn't change a lot. You know, he certainly did different things with his voice. But this song, to me, Paul hasn't found his voice. So there's, t- the songs mm-hmm. that I've chosen later on, they, hopefully they show there was a way that Paul understood how to be intimate with his voice and it's to me it's incredibly effective. Right. And there was a way that he found to be to be strong and rock and roll with his voice. Right. But in this one he's still sort of somebody else. He's not I mean, not not really. Like he's not it, you can't contain Paul McCartney, but but he's still la la me do. He's still singing like Phil and Don in this one. And, yeah. Okay. And he hasn't hasn't found his I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I, believe me, it's a no. It's, it's a great good point. choice. But I, But that's the way that's a it's, good point. it sounds to me.
2: And John's voice does. It's it's unmistakable, John from the yeah. from the moment. Yeah. And, and you're right. Yep. He did. Yeah. And maybe the thing with that was, Paul was given to the idea that he could play all these different characters at that point in sure. his You know, yeah. in his singing career. And so that was his gift, you know. It evolved very, very quickly into having the voice and then the songs. But at that point in time, he was his gift was the the imitation.
0: Uh, Colin touched on uh, a lot of stuff, like just like you were reading my notes Uh, (laughs) the three three versions just to put some meat on the bones uh, three recordings of the song version one with Pete Best on the drums was recorded for an EMI artist test on June 6th 62 Uh, they thought that one was lost forever but it was unearthed and showed up on the Anthology 1 album version two was on September the 4th with Ringo Starr playing the drums and then version three on September 11th 1962 a session drummer by the name of Andy White played drums, and Ringo uh, was relegated to uh, the, uh, not insignificant, but not as important, tambourine. Uh, And just uh, some trivia, when it was initially put out in the UK, the initial versions that went out had Ringo on the drums, that one. However, Mm -hmm. the record company and George Martin went back and said, no, no, uh, we want the version with Andy White. So then that one went out, and also the album version, the Please Please Me album is Andy White. You can tell the difference on the two quite easily. The one with tambourine has Andy White in the drums. The one with Ringo, of course, there is no tambourine. And it's just funny, you find this, you know, people get older, Things were a long time ago, and memories change, uh, because it's funny. John Lennon interviewed in 1980. He said, Love Me Do is Paul's song. He wrote it when he was a teenager, uh, and then he said, ah, let me think. I might have helped in the middle eight, but I couldn't swear to it. McCartney interviewed years after that, said, Love Me Do was completely co-written. <laughs> it might have been my original <laughs> idea, but some of them really were 50-50s, and I right. think that was one of them. So and, uh, cool. and absolutely correct it was a two track recording uh, and there were no overdubs and the reason that McCartney had to jump in at that point as Colin said is Lennon was playing a chromatic harmonica and he couldn't sing and play at the same time uh, so we go on to cut number two and also a Colin pick and one of my favorite Beatles songs I love this one you talk about harmonies This Boy
2: it was very much there trying to do an R b style song you know it was it was influenced and inspired by the early Motown r b um, um, sound uh, vocally and uh, there's three part harmonies on this which I did not know there's actually uh John Paul and George on this track but George's part you know sometimes in harmonic three parts you know they' they' one of the parts say the third part can be somewhat transparent and in this song I feel like that's what's go, like you can't really hear George as distinctly as John and Paul but it is there is a three part in the um in the song um and it was recorded as a three part around and one mic around yeah, one mic. Yeah. And uh, so I found that pretty incredible when you listen to, and uh, you know, I was always in, one thing about doing vocals in that manner is if you were doing it, especially back in the day and somebody was the lead and the harmonies had to, you know, they would have to position themselves and they'd have, you know, you'd have to move a bit to just find that balance, right? Um, and so that song certainly demonstrates that. Maybe George was just a little too far away. <laughs> right. <laughs> they
1: squeezed them out. They squeezed them out. over um, there, George.
2: What else? I just think, uh, you know, uh, when you read the notes about it and they say, well, it was, you know, uh, it was just them trying to do an R&B song. It was like whatever kind of song. I, I, it just, it's a brilliantly written song and it really does highlight John's, the character of John's voice. Um, it's one of the early songs where they double tracked uh, his vocal to in the middle eight. Um, and it's pre uh, what they call ADT, which was the um, the um, artificial double tracking. So that song really has that classic early proper doubling. And and once the um, the device that they that they came up with at Abbey Road, which allowed for the sound of a doubled voice, um, John didn't like doing doubles. So you know this is still him doing
0: doubles in the middle eight.
2: Um I just think it's a fabulous song. I
0: I you know? just love the intricate three-part harmony. Yeah. I, I love it.
2: Yeah, yeah I
1: listen, I think that the, the it, it's incredible. Well, first of all, like when we started talking about how, you know, they were they were emulating the who they were emulating, this shows how quickly they moved beyond it because yeah. Now they found their voice. They're singing intimately and yet in each, you know, that little hiccup in John's voice when he goes that that I remember yeah. as a kid how much that got Oh i oh. feel like your voice is running out but they found their voices and it's what's a year later and, yeah and and yeah. they found their voices in this beautiful harmony and they, and if 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 there is a suggestion that they whip this off then it is it yeah. is a further testament to their brilliance because yeah. it's, it's a it's a beautiful song uh, it's beautifully sung and tangentially it's a great part of the movie
2: Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. The, yeah, Poor the, little yeah, wounded Ringo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cans yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It was the, uh, the first day and the first track on which they were able to utilize four track recording at Abbey Road. Uh, the same day, they also recorded I Want to Hold Your Hand, uh, as well as a fan club Christmas single and a version of You Really Got a Hold on Me. So, uh, not a bad day's work. Okay. Uh, and this was, I can't, this was a B side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so B, it was buried in the UK, anyways. On the, not buried, but it was it was the flip side, the B side of "I Want to Hold Your Hand," the mm-hmm. single. Uh, like to I have a, to have a song like that and I just know. go, yeah, uh, I
1: know.
0: We'll, we'll use that somewhere. Uh, I just yeah. I, I just found it. Now I love the harmonies in this boy. That that tight harmony sound has been a fixture uh, of Blue Rodeo sound since the first record. I mean, I, I was giving uh, uh, giving a spin. Uh, yeah, on outskirts first cut heart like mine rose colored glasses and in the chorus you know the day after day after day that part um hasn't hit me yet from five days in july jumps out at me with some lovely harmonies and all to me different types of songs so where i'm going with this is are there certain moments or types of songs where you feel harmony vocals are particularly powerful and do you use them
1: Well, I think that Greg and I, from the very beginning, so when we stopped being an imitative band in in 1984 and just did our songs together and strumming guitars, we realized that uh, we had a combination of tonalities between our voices that just worked. And there's a certain amount of that in in, in, uh, John and Paul. Not a certain amount. There's a great amount of that in John and Paul. Their voices, if there was a gravelly sound to to John's voice and a sweet sound to Paul's voice, they blended they blended extremely well because they have very similar ranges even though that's not what everybody would think have very similar ranges and uh, obviously each one could do what the other one did too but uh, i think Greg and i rec- recognized that from the beginning that we could that this was a feature that first of all we enjoyed because it's it's a is actually a, you know sort of brain food to sing harmony you just get this beautiful um, this this beautiful uh, rush, uh, just from the feeling of, of uh, the notes hitting to each other. And, uh, and secondly, we thought it, this was a strong feature of our band. I know, I always put harmonies in. I always said, let's do this, let's do this. Now, you know, there was times when Greg felt it was too much and, and, uh, and then I'd be wounded and, and you know, so we... But it was just something that I always heard. I always heard um, harmonies and, and Greg heard harmonies and it just was a feature of our band from, from the, the absolute inception of Blue Rodeo.
0: Colin, I don't know if, uh, if you were in a very, very unique position. Uh, you're on stage with a couple of guys who are known as beautiful harmonizers. Yeah. Uh, do you ever find yourself watching and listening instead well, of sure. participating?
2: For sure. And I, you know, to Jim's point, like there is, uh, you know, when when there's a tonality of with voices that blend together in such a way that it's so musically pleasing to hear. I'm as much of a fan as anybody even when I'm there performing and I hear them do these parts together and you know, I go that's a you know that's a special thing cuz you know you can conceptualize it but there's also the delivery of it and how it makes people feel is another thing and it does go back to the early sort of our reference for harmonized vocals, let's say, especially with the Beatles, and you know, and the Everlys for me too. I love the Everly sound, um, but there's a certain thing that happens, and you're just like, that is that's special, you know. And uh, so for sure, I I you know I listen to them sing together on uh, a lot of the songs, and uh, there's a certain there's just a magic in there, you know. It's like you got you got a gift, and the figured out how to use it you know but there's
1: a, colin is a participant in a lot of the harmonies yeah, yeah. because you know he's he's singing high he's singing falsetto he's he's doing yeah. a lot of things with us that we do in the studio but can't with just the two of us can't we right never so it was very it was a huge bonus when colin finally was talked into joining the band uh to uh, to have that third voice yeah. yeah, but you remember there was a there's a that's there's the there's story of, of uh, the mamas and the papas that when they they used to say that when they were in a room and they sang together when when they hit it right so when all the overtones were right they, they had an, another presence in the room they used to call Harvey right oh yeah yeah, yeah they used to call Harvey so Har- Harvey's here so we can we can carry on and of course that's that's truly the way it is I mean yeah. I think that if you go and listen to other people. It's like great bands are defined by great rhythm sections, you know. And and, and a band that doesn't have a great rhythm section is going to have a rough time. And 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 when you hear people sing, you think some voices go together and some don't. It's just it's not a given. Yeah. And yeah. and also as a harmony singer, you have to adjust your voice. You have to change the tonality of your voice. You have to you have to do a lot of things to make make it blend. But you have to have the understanding, as Colin does, and I think Greg and I do, of what it's supposed to sound like and what it's supposed to sound like is there's there's some kind of strengthening of the overtone that creates a note that you are not singing and you can hear yeah and it's just so thrilling and it's yeah. so healthy it's just you know yeah well, oh, to your point,
0: uh, you know, it, you didn't realize that this boy was three-part harmony and not I just two. <coughs> but then, when you hear it, you can hear George. You can hear George, yeah. and it—it's uh,
2: you know they—they they call it a transparent harmony sometimes because it's not so evident. But without it, you'd think, well, that would be different, you yeah. know. So. Yeah.
0: So to cut number three on our uh, side number one and another Colin song. I told you oh, side I, one. Why, side, I, like, why am I here? You'll, uh, you'll get in. <laughs> right. What am I doing? <laughs> I thought you were
2: going to go back and forth, Paul. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, I no, no, no. no,
0: no. no, no. I,
1: you were here before me, so this is what's happening. <laughs> <Yeah. You guys laughs> <You made laughs> maybe strategic.
0: Uh, but it's going to be a great album, right? You, you, you're going to have a or, strong second song I sign. hope so. That's it. <laughs> 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 so uh, cut number three is Babies in Black, a Colin pick. It was the first song to be recorded for... For Beatles for sale uh, and completed in a single session in August of 1964. Even Stephen, collaboration between John and Paul.
2: Yes. Oh dear,
1: what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? She thinks of him. And so she dresses in black. And though he'll never come back, she's dressed in
2: black. Oh, to me, this is about as perfect a song as the early style of writing that they did is for me. It's it's a song I I probably listened to, it, you know, a hundred thousand times, you know. Uh, and it still does the same thing for me. I just go like How is this sound? So great. And it was done live. They're singing together. This is still, you know, they could have overdubbed it, but they wanted to sing it together. So they're on one mic together. Um, uh, Paul says that it was Everly inspired. So it does have that sort of Everly sort of tension in it. But... um, I can't really say anything otherwise about it except that I just have this incredible love for the performance of the song. The vocals are, to me, they're just as perfect as you could get in a live performance, but it's a recording. And the middle eight, the way that Paul's voice goes up is to Jim's earlier point about that thing where the blending of two tones that is just Certain singers that when they get together, that thing happens. That middle-aged in Babies in Black to me is is about as perfect as it gets. Um, oh,
0: how long will oh, it yes, take
2: yes, yes. till she sees, yes, yes. sees a mistake, mistake she has, has made? made. Oh. And that's full voice, you know, full voice, perfect tone. I just like, I still get goosebumps. So for me, if I think if vocal performances in music, that song is up there with... The
0: greatest for me. Yep. They, uh, to your point, uh, Lennon McCartney sang their parts simultaneously into the same microphone to give a feeling of closeness to the yeah. song. So they were looking for that Everly's thing. Fourteen runs they took at it. Only five of those were complete takes, uh, and they got it. Uh, it. W- they loved it. Uh, if, if going by their set lists was any indication, they played it live through their their final tour of America, uh, including their last show at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Yeah. So they really liked to play it uh McCartney always introduced the song by saying and now for something different uh because it was in waltz time yeah 68 yeah and they didn't do yeah. a lot of uh, yeah. songs in in waltz time yeah. Yeah. um it was a staple. He says, uh, Babies in Black we did because we like waltz time. We used to do, if you got to make a fool of somebody, a cool 3-4 time blues thing. And other bands would notice that and say, shit man, you're doing something in 3-4. So we got known for that. And I also think John and I wanted to do something bluesy, a bit darker, more grown up, rather than just straight pop. It was more Babies in Black as in morning. Our favorite color was black as well. That's McCartney's memory of the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we go to cut number four and uh, oh
1: please let it be me oh please let it be no, me
0: no it's one more Colin oh uh, no it's...
1: this is a disaster and,
0: and, and, and this is a this is an interesting one for uh, to, to pick as a vocal performance because to most people mm. I think the defining characteristic of the song is the jangly Rickenbacker guitar that yeah. opens it and I'm talking about If I Needed Someone
2: Okay, so I know I'm I know I'm I know I'm going to take some uh, you know heat some heat for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, being a guitar player, of course, I would lean more to that as well. You know, I love the the jangly Rickenbacker signature that George kind of you know that he certainly developed for himself. Um, but this song was very much influenced by the Birds and. Uh, so, uh, and then specifically the specific of this song, Bells of Rimney. And he, uh, and I think he was, tr- obviously he was trying to find his voice, uh, you know. So that aside, what I do love about the vocal performance is it's it's a very early George composition. It's not, a, he didn't, you know, he didn't have a lot of songs up to that point. And um, it suggests what was to come, which was, he was becoming very quickly immersed in the Indian style of singing—that sort of mantric, you know, somewhat singing. monotone mm. style of of singing. But think where that led. What this led to in terms of his signature as more, a vocalist—more one-note singing. Well, as a vocalist, and uh, again, from you know, saying that, you know, he was amongst he was he's amidst the two probably the two greatest singers of the time in pop music. And so he had to find his voice like in a way that, you know, uh that worked for him. And I think this song suggests what was to come for him in a way that wasn't necessarily evident.
0: Well, and and also vocally, I mean there's yeah. that three-part block harmony and that was in, yeah. in the middle of the song. Yeah, yeah. But that's
1: not George. That was that's what I was going to say is that the George songs first of all the, it, it starts off with the characteristic uh, George kind of, uh, you know, start off with a negative. If I needed somebody, <laughs> which I don't, then you'd be the one. You know, don't bother me. Uh, you know, it goes on and on with, uh, you know, uh, with this, this negative. But I've always thought, I mean, look, when I was young, George, I loved George. I thought he was the cool Beatle. Um, but it never could quite get around the songs or the or the singing Now, to say that this is one of the five best vocal tracks. I didn't say best. That's what we're doing here. Well, no, I thought we were doing... You've got four in a row here. Four in a row. I'm not even represented uh, Vocal moments. Okay, vocal moments. But the thing is that that often the George songs, as as good as they were and as good as they became, were defined by how amazing the background vocals are when they came here. You know, all of a sudden there's this... This block of this shimmery vocal harmonies and George's relatively plain, and I'm not criticizing for it. He had a he had a voice that worked, and he knew how to do it. But all of a sudden, that voice is is supported, and and you know, it's like the you know they used to have that thing in the in the in the studio, the oral exciter. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It, it just all it, all it did was <sighs> everything add, just made everything, everything sound angelic. What, but it, that's what it sounds like. There was this oral exciter from the background yes. coming in, and 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 again. For me, you realized how great the other two guys were. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I listen. Oh, yeah. I think it's a really good song. It it there is you can easily pick apart George's songs for the for the uh, the, the double negatives in them. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but yeah. I, I I do think that he he was he he was put in a difficult position and he created a. Uh, signature guitar sound and vocal sound and song structure for himself. And, and that would have been yeah. very difficult.
2: And this song, I believe this song led to better Yeah, it was a good song. better performances as a vocalist.
0: It, it's it's a good classic George to your point earlier, Jim, you know, he was asked about the song and like, I've never written a song but if I was asked about one I'd probably big it up, you know, and I was, oh, well, i worked on this and I'd, yeah, yeah. I'd be, pro- he said, well, if I needed someone it's like a million other songs written around the D chord, if you move your Finger about, you get various little melodies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> way yeah. to sell it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, way to go, George. Now, way I do, uh, b- before we get on to the last track, which is a gym track, Ooh, to, to close, strong right. side one closer, um, uh, Colin, so this is a very different George Harrison vocal style than the one we would get. Only about five years later, when he recorded All Things Must Pass, a a much more plaintive style, not unlike yours on your solo record, Stormy Northern Days, which I had a chance to listen to. Your True Colors, The One That Keeps Me Running, amongst others, to me, with a really Dylan Harrison feel to them. Mm. So, I'll ask you flat out, is George your favorite Beatles singer?
2: No. No? No. (laughs) No. No, I You just no. pushed that one too far, Paul. No, okay. No, I, I, thought would,
1: were going, uh, I thought you were no, going really strong there. No, no.
2: <laughs> no. I I highly respect and appreciate what his role was, as we've been saying, amidst these two incredible singers. Um, and I think he did a fantastic job. And then he be, he came into his own, you know. But I never think he was a belter. He could he didn't have a huge range as a vocalist. He was an intimate singer. And I think that continued along as, as you listen to recordings, right up to his solo work. So I think that, that that the value of that, like if you know your voice or the limitations of your voice at a certain point, especially in comparison to people that you're working with, then I think you I think you hone that a little bit more as a way to establish yourself, and then that just becomes part of your style, you know, and. Uh, I think George was clearly an example of that. And I don't have a, I, I'm not a belter. I don't have a super high voice. I have a good, I, have, I was gifted with a really good falsetto voice. I can sing all the falsetto, but it's not a powerful voice. Like you don't need to have a lot of power to sing falsetto. You just have to have a good pitch. And and uh, so I know that that's where my my ben, I benefit as a harmony singer and as a sort of singer in the range that I'm comfortable in. And when I say go out of out of that, it just doesn't it doesn't sound as musical to me. So when so, you
0: when you did Stormy Northern Days, I mean yeah. it's a long time ago now, a few years. But yeah. were you thinking of Dylan or Harrison, circa All Things Must Pass? No,
2: no. To be honest, no. I was thinking more Gordon Lightfoot. I'm gonna take a shot at it. Yeah. I was okay. thinking more Gordon Lightfoot.
0: Okay. Hmm.
1: okay. See, I uh, think that Paul yeah. Paul is is onto something here, and that is that that you you had five choices. For five spectacular <laughs> singing moments in the Beatles' uh, in in the the Beatles' career, and you picked a George song, an early George song. Mm-hmm. So, do you identify with George? Is that like? Were you were you picking that? Was this a sympathy pick? Was was like what what you know? I mean, I could the truth comes of, out.
2: I'm amongst a John and a Paul, and I've got but, a, but a girl, no, I got to figure out why am what, I George? Is it because
1: your sympathy goes to George? I gotta pick, I gotta do something for George here. No, like, I really usual.
2: No, I I truly I, will think I truly it's thought the vocal was a bridge vocal. Let's let, and but a character vocal it, that not led a great to. Vocal. Okay, it's but, not a top five great vocal. Mm, oh, no. Okay, fine. Yeah. We've, we've, I think we're, we've, we've established well, I think
1: that. we're getting somewhere. Okay. We've established
2: that. Fair enough. All
1: great right.
0: vocal moments, though.
1: Yeah. It was a vocal oh, okay. moment. Yeah, okay. You know,
0: but, so. <laughs> so to close out side one, we finally get to it. Jim's in the room. We get to, <laughs> we get to a Jim's song. can't wait for this one. And, <laughs> and this is a, a couple of... Dear listener, you're going to... Uh, the first two picks from Jim, I had to scratch my head when I saw them, and and mm, you're gonna you good. you'll you'll Can't explain wait. why. Well, it, I scratch my head. There's not much to scratch. It's <laughs> so <laughs> I had to do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but nonetheless, let's start it off. Cut five, ending of side one, and ending of part one of this uh, podcast. Happiness is a warm gun. Right. She's not a girl. Who misses much?
2: Oh yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane. A man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots. With his eyes While his hands are busy Working overtime A soap impression of his wife Which he ate And donated to the
1: National Trust Over the years, people think John was the one with the amazing uh, uh scream And Paul was the sweet singer And in Happiness is a Warm Gun And I recognize that it's, it's a pastiche song for John However... It actually does exhibit all the things he does really well. It it it's there's the screamer part in it, there's the sweet part in it, um, and it, it's it really is this. I mean, he was a phenomenal singer from the get-go. Where Paul learned, John always knew. And so the reason that I picked this because I could easily have picked five Paul songs because those are the those are the vocals that have the most impact on me. But I I wanted to pick. Um, I wanted to pick a John song and I wanted to pick a John song that in one song exhibited all the facets of, of John, of uh, all the, all the different things he, he can do. And, you know, I mean, once those, once the Beatles understood how to use the microphone intimately, it was such a different experience as a listener. So I can remember putting on those records in different at different ages. I can remember putting on early Beatles records and just feeling the the excitement that's coming through the speakers. But by the time we get to the White Album, I remember feeling like I was enveloped by the songs. I remember feeling like, I don't know how they do this, but it makes me feel like I'm sitting in the middle of the band. And Happiness is a Warm Gun, which is pretty perturbing at at, at the age I was, um, is one of those songs, and I think it's truly—it's it's magnificent vocals.
0: Uh, It's—it's actually—it's made up of four songs fragments uh, and and all kinds of time signatures all over <laughs> the road as you guys would know I mean it goes from 4-4 four, four to 6-4 on the sort of dirty old man section uh, and then the, uh, the, the sort of junky section I need to fix the drums play sort of 6-8 uh, and this is all musical stuff that I, I just read and don't fully grasp and then the mother superior portion 6-8 and 4-4 four, four. and then they go to the gunman section uh, and again musical keychain Yes. That must that, that would must have been just incredible to play. <laughs> they must have had so much fun. Yeah. They must have had so much fun. I mean, it all works together. And uh,
1: yeah, and again, the last, you know, the, the happiness is a warm gun. It had, it, it, it did that little thing that John did, that, that little catch in his voice. That, that. At the that, end. It, the yeah. Happiness is a warm, yes it is. And yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Fantastic falsetto. Yeah.
2: Happiness
1: is a warm, yes it is. God, happiness. But well, don't you know that happiness, happiness is a warm gun, Mama. Yeah. He could, uh, he could make you excited, and he could make you uh, emotional. And- all Oh,
0: that one song. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the the part at the end where, and you could the way you could hear him like, ah, take mm-hmm. the big deep breath yeah. before he he hits the high note. Yeah, and and there's some three part harmony in there. The bang bang shoot shoot mm-hmm. yeah. section, some three part yeah, yeah, yeah. harmony in there. So uh, now three-part uh, they the, I wonder if they experimented during the recording process with it with that and and I'm wondering if that's what you typically like to do with your harmonies or are the harmony vocals all planned out uh, they're not you're shaking your head yeah. no
1: no they're not planned out we, 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 we do uh you know obviously at the beginning of, of blue rodeo we were we were more roadworthy and a lot of this stuff was worked out to play live but then since we became a recording act. Then, then that stuff had to be done separately. And basically, what we do is we all just sit in here, and everybody has a go at the mic. And uh, usually, I have a an idea of, of what I what I think should happen. And then uh, I'll teach something to Greg. Colin will have an idea, and he'll he'll put it down. So I mean, we have we have a big tool chest of things we can do. We can do. Uh, Call and response. We can do th- thirds harmonies. We can do three part. We can do falsettos. We can do, um, you know, a- answer vocals. All kinds of stuff. So we just we just experiment and just keep working on it.
0: Yeah. Um. Yes, no, exactly that. Before we wrap up part one, I do want to ask you guys, going back to the first cut, uh, which is Love Me Do, uh, over 60 years since the release of Love Me Do, believe it or not, uh, and 30 years since the release of Blue Rodeo's biggest selling record, Five Days in July, which I know you've been out touring. There's special editions available that you can get at the website. Um, What do you remember about recording the album what's the picture in your mind
1: yeah i can remember i mean we now we've talked about it a lot but it's but it, it's in, in an indelible memory because um, it was a it was a huge reaction to going out to lost together lost together was a was a very loud record it was a very loud tour and we would tour it all over the place all the time it was very damaging to our personal lives and when we came back we wanted to do something that just nourished the soul a little more and this acoustic thing we kind of stumbled on when we were doing demos so setting up in Greg's place, I remember that comfort was 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 a number one priority. Make sure everybody had a nice chair. Like if they wanted to drink, that was great. Mimi was cooking for us, and um, it was so easy. It was just playing the songs. We did two a day. We just do them live off the floor, and there was a lot of spontaneity. Um, we didn't. We planned out mostly, but for solos we didn't know. We didn't know Greg was going to do that thing at the end, soloing at the end of five days in May. Just a, it, was, it was an incredible amount of communication among the band members, and it was just live off the floor, and That what that record is, is just the way we played it. And of course, we had special guests there. So I mean, I remember everything about it. I remember people swimming in the pool behind us while we were doing a cut. I remember a dog, my friend Rob Gray's dog, going through the screen you know, while we were recording. And there's all kinds of noises on it, you listen under headphones, but... It's,
2: it was a beautiful experience
0: mm. Colin, what, uh, What? do you have a, an early memory of, or any memory at all of hearing the album for the first time? Yeah,
2: of course I actually, um, I mean because, you know, our, our history goes back obviously to, to the late 80s so I, you know, I knew Greg and Jim and, and Greg and I played together in Crash Vegas and and uh, and so there was definitely, you know it was like a communal thing, you know between us and and um, I have one memory I have was, I don't know if I should say all that, but it doesn't matter. But So part of the, the reason that Greg uh, and I worked together is because Greg was dating the singer uh, in Crash Vegas. And so long story short, they split up in 1992, just before uh, we went to make our second record, went away for four or five months, came back, and I ran into Greg um, and he says, why don't you come up to, the, to my place, you know, the farm, and, and hang out for a day and we can catch up and stuff. So and I went up just to see him, you know, because we were friends, right? And, uh, and, uh, and uh, speaking of the pool, he goes, come out to the pool. I got a, I got a song I want to play you. And I think he wanted to play it for me because it was essentially about their breakup. And he played me for the first time, uh, hasn't hit me yet on acoustic. And I, you know, I just remember hearing that song then and thinking, that's a fantastic song, you know. You
1: say that you're leaving Well, that comes as no surprise Still I kind of like this feeling of being
2: like you don't know where songs are gonna go like you don't know what their life is gonna necessarily be like but i just remember hearing that song and i think well, that was a fantastic song and obviously i felt like greg was very sort of proud of that song mm-hmm. at that moment when he played it it was i've been around him a long time we've been around you know we've spent a lifetime you know when somebody's sort of like, he, check this out, I just kind of, I did this. And, uh, and it was very heartfelt and very, um, you know, sincere sort of sentiment, obviously. And I think that's carried since the day I heard it, you know? And, um, and that record has all the signatures of that. And that's what I remember about that record. When, it first, when I first heard it, it was, as Jim says, for the listener, it was an intimate record. It had all the signatures of what a great intimate record should be. And what should make you feel connected to it? You know the intimacy of, of what music can do. That record does.
1: You know, Greg loved that song so much he tried to give it to the Skydiggers. You know that, right?
2: Maybe he was just yeah, thought they, I they could give it to everybody. They had to go at it, and they turned it down.
1: Yeah, well, how crazy They, they, was could, that they just they couldn't get their head around they couldn't it. Couldn't get it around. So yeah. yeah, and I remember hearing yeah. it, saying, Greg, what, what were you thinking? Yeah. Why were you trying to give that away?
2: Because he was in that. I'm just sharing with everybody. Oh, he would have wow. taken, taken it back. Oh,
0: that's a good story. That's a good story. Uh, guys, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take a break here and, uh, and come back next time and talk about side two where Jim uh, has four out of the five cuts. Uh, so we will... Uh,
1: it's going to be a strong to be. It's, it's, should uh, I just go
0: for a walk? You know, side, no, side one was good. I enjoyed yeah. side one. I enjoyed side one. Side one was fine. Just, you know, sequencing the <laughs> album. I mean, you know what? In hindsight, I, maybe I should have sequenced it a little differently. Should have oh, mixed sure. things up a little more. But uh, all right. Well, so <laughs> until next time. Uh, If you've enjoyed the episode, or any of the episodes for that matter, please do consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Any little amount helps, and you can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. I get it. uh, Most people, myself included, don't donate to every podcast that they listen to, but if you enjoy this one, I'd really appreciate it if you would help. Help me offset some of my costs with a little bit of financial support. So if you can afford it, please give that support the walrus button a click. Uh, If you're a fan of Blue Rodeo and Jim and Colin, you might want to check out series two episodes 11 and 12 when our dynamic duo dug into Abbey Road. Uh, That's worth listening to. And if you go all the way back to series one and Episode one, it was the lads talking about the great Beatles album, Rubber Soul. So there you go. all findable in the archive. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials on uh, X or Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul on Facebook. Do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and give a follow there. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the.romicast at gmail. That is the.romicast at gmail. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also help out, Always, this podcast is produced, researched, edited, and hosted by me, Paul Romanek. That's it for now. I'll talk to you next time.
1: Do you ever get tired?